Welcome to Test Podagogy. It is a rare week when I don't get an article submission that cites Professor Michael Young. His role in the articulation of the knowledge-rich curriculum means he has been central to the arguments of ministers, Ofsted and teachers alike. But what does he really think about curriculum, knowledge and pedagogy? Michael, who is Professor of Education at the Institute of Education in London, joins us today so we can find out. Michael, thank you for joining me on the okay. podcast. Um, I think we should start by defining our terms, if that's okay with you, because knowledge is, means lots of different things to lots of different people. What, what would you say knowledge, you know, a simple definition, if there is such a thing of knowledge, would be? I think uh, in, Eng in English, it's such a broad term mm. that in a sense, it's, always, its meaning is given by the context in which it's used. Okay, yeah. So in a sense... Uh, it's one thing to have um, uh, a knowledge of a teaching method. It's another thing to have uh, a knowledge of a street name. It's, an, it's another thing to have a knowledge of um, quantum theory. Yeah. And they're all knowledge. And therefore you, you have to... But I think the thing that I would want most to emphasise is that in fact knowledge is about, knowledge is about what's true mm. in the context. That's the first thing that's really important. The second thing is that in fact... Um, Knowledge in education is can't avoid being about how students acquire it and uh, their relationship to it. Mm. So it's not uh, because I might if you, if you don't take on the fact that that in fact in acquiring knowledge you develop a relationship to it, you end up with knowledge as bits mm -hmm. of information, and then the assumption is that the the student is more like a computer store. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, that that that's the danger. And therefore, in a sense, but it's quite difficult to conceptualise the idea of knowledge as a relation. I mean, it's not a neat thing for a, a national curriculum or anything like that. It's interesting as well that we never really put any quantifiers on knowledge. So we sort of say good knowledge or poor knowledge, but obviously the, the degree of mm. the degrees of knowledge are, are so broad. Yeah. But I think you can. I think you can have. I think for the for the teacher. And that this is what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, we're not we're not talking about the uh, the physicist yeah. or somebody else, and we're not, and we're certainly not talking about the priest who has another notion of knowledge, yeah. which is in fact theolo which is about faith. Yeah, we're not talking about that yeah. either. Um, I think I think for the teacher, the really important thing is that there is that in whatever he or she does or says in the classroom actually has to be the best he thinks or she thinks for that student there and then and um, for instance um, and if and, and that's really important because he wants to somehow he wants to inspire the, the student to want to go on learning mm -hmm. to want to go on asking questions and I think that's that's really so he's not telling it as fixed he's telling it as, as a way of thinking so knowledge think, is like the teacher decides is the, is the decision maker on what level of knowledge that child needs for that yeah. purpose. But they're not really, you can't really talk about levels of knowledge. What you can talk about is some kind of sequencing in something like a curriculum where kids, because in fact, what, what, what teaching and education is always, it's, it's about that, that movement from your, the everyday knowledge you bring to the school and the knowledge that you end up with, mm. because that's why we think it's worth having kids at school, yeah. because we want them to have knowledge and want them to be able to think in ways that they couldn't when they came. And there are some of the researchers, and I think it's quite a useful concept, talk about the rupture 
between the knowledge they come with and the knowledge you want them to leave with. And that's a big teacher's responsibility. Research is not going to solve that one yeah. um, at all. The teacher's got to kind of make sure that the, that the student actually trusts him or her in, in, in what they say. And uh, that, that's quite a responsibility. And it's why, in a sense, teaching is a much bigger job than we in society actually give credit to. Do you think that we give enough credit? You were talking about the knowledge a child comes into the education mm -hmm. system with. Obviously, education values certain types of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have this sort of hierarchical nature, notion of knowledge now in, in the system, it seems, where knowledge of, of a... Of a sort of a working class community and, and the, the social codes that go along with that is perhaps less valued knowledge in the school system than uh, more cultural knowledge around museums and, and factual knowledge. Mm -hmm. Is that attention school should be involved with or is that, you know, is a school got to stick to its job, which is this sort of factual or, or understanding of a wider... I think that's, I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't understand it in quite that way. Mm -hmm. I think I'd understand it that, in fact, regardless of the cultural background you come from, um, the knowledge you've acquired, in a sense, is related to the context that you're in. Mm -hmm. And you come to school, and we think it worth it, that's why we have schools, to saying you've got to make a break with that sense of knowledge, that you can't just rely on the context you've been in. You've actually got to rely on the research, the specialists in a particular area, um, might might be geography, it might be history, so that in a sense you're actually changing the, the, the authority of the knowledge from the experience to actually the body of knowledge that in fact the, the student becomes engaged with. That doesn't mean that that, that that is a sort of fixed thing or something, but it does mean that you're, you've got a change in that relationship. And that is the one that some some circumstances that people grow up in find easier than others. Mm. Um, and some circumstances, if not many adults are around or there are lots of kids around and not many time with adults, they've never really experienced the idea of knowledge not being tied to their experience. Whereas some, there's a constant effort on the parents to actually make them set beyond their experience. And they're much better equipped for school. Mm. So it's not about whether it's working class knowledge or middle class knowledge. It's about the changing relationship. That's what I would stress. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we actually, I guess in that process of, of, of school starting at, say, let's say four years old, let's say when they enter formal schooling and reception, mm -hmm. the starting points are so broad from that perspective. Is, is what we do with those children in the first two years about sort of letting those other children catch up or if we teach everyone the same, the others will pull further ahead in, in, that, in that accumulated knowledge. I mean, I think it's, it's, a, a, really, it's a really difficult question, that, mm. because in a sense what you're pointing to is the fact that uh, the, the teacher has a sense of the knowledge that he or she wants his students to have, but the pupils come with all kinds of different mm. experiences. And somehow or other you've got... You've got them. You've got to, in a sense, take them all, and some will move faster than others, inevitably. Yeah. And in a sense, if they're thirty or forty, it's harder to keep them together. I've been very impressed with what I've read, and I don't know much about about Japan. That in fact they have a system which strongly emphasises the um, 
the importance of keeping the whole class together and not differentiating them or ranking them or so forth. Okay. And we tend to have a different assumption that sort of pulls out the bright ones and pushes them and gives them a chance. And then some of the others, are, it's a very different culture. In the end, it doesn't work out so differently, but it's a very different culture. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, for instance, you get very, very small number of special needs kids in Japan. Not because there are differences in the sort of innateness between Japanese and English kids, but because they approach the problem of diversity of learning experience in different ways. One focuses on the collective of the class, the other focuses on the individual learner. Mm. And it's, I guess it's with, with the way our system's set up, in the, you know, if you're a parent of a child who, who is who has some of that, um, that, that, that school type of knowledge ready. Mm -hmm. You don't want your child, you know, there's pressure on a school to say, look, how are you pushing my child? You're pushing them on, you're pushing them on. And, and they may not be giving time to that, the other children to catch up, even though, and so there's a tension there that's outside of like a teacher's control, which is a, which is a parental or a market uh, pressure, if you like. Oh. I mean, I think you, you, you I mean, you know, primary teachers develop ways of coping with that mm. and in a sense that the system doesn't always recognize them in the kind of way it recognizes the say the good physics well-qualified physics teacher because you can identify the knowledge that he or she has and market you can't do that so well with, with primary school teachers mm. and um, but I think what's shifted a bit in primary schools is the the move away from a dominantly child-centered because the old notion was allow the you know encourage the child to celebrate their own play their own activity and so forth and that's fine but it never took them it never took any of them beyond and if you look at the differences between private and public primary schools you find that the private preparatory schools actually uh, focus on subjects much sooner than they do in the primary schools okay. and that and that actually gives them a sort of an advance in their learning um it doesn't mean that it denies that background but it's slightly easier for the teachers of those uh, in those schools because there's some there's more common experience of the pupils yeah i guess i guess that neatly takes us to sort of the types of knowledge we're talking about and and, and you've detailed these three approaches to, to, to knowledge, the uh, future one, future two, and future three. So if we look at future one first, which is this idea of a fixed, mm -hmm. you know, best that's been fought and said type of knowledge, and, and you associate that with um, you know, a, a type of education that was, was around perhaps 20 years ago. Do you want to expand on that a bit more about what future one is in, in your thinking? Well, I think, I mean, there was an assumption which in a sense goes back to the 19th century that there was a given body of knowledge mm. that in fact that that was largely not a question at issue and that in fact uh, if kids didn't make it in relation to that given body of knowledge they were assumed to have no ability and they were in fact bracketed out either to a secondary modern school or a, or a technical school mm. and the few that don't went on to, that did manage, went on to grammar schools and people were very doubtful about that that process of selection mm. that in fact it actually didn't didn't give the broad majority 
actually the kind of access it might, which is why there was a lot of criticism. Mm. And um, and it you know it changed it changed over time, but it didn't really. The interesting thing is that um, it it uh, it didn't it didn't really say I'm replacing one kind of knowledge. It, if anything, what it tried to do was to be critical of a of a model that saw a pupil as a kind of adapter to the givenness of the world, yeah. rather than in a sense giving an opportunity to engage with that givenness. Yeah, yeah. And that was so. I think it, I think we slightly exaggerated that because if you look at I don't know some of the top private schools, they don't treat that knowledge as they treat that knowledge as given. But in fact, in the classroom, they allow kids to engage with it. To play with those ideas. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm. And, um, and the problem that, that, in a sense, what Future One did was to actually deny uh, access to kids um, who didn't respond positively to it. Or that, for instance, that often used to happen, if, if you found yourself in failing 11 plus in a secondary modern school, then the chances are you didn't have a physics teacher in the school, mm. so you would so you had nobody who had the body of knowledge, yeah. um, and that, that that was the question. That's what opened up, but I think it then because future two it was our kind of, I mean, and this is where we came to have some kind of some of us sociologists came to have some kind of agreement with the arguments put forward by people like Michael Gove, mm. that in fact future two said there was a great tranche. Of, of young people who would be better doing something other than having access to knowledge mm. um, because it would allow them to develop but it allowed them to develop but it didn't allow it didn't ask the question as what they were developing in yeah so for instance you know um, way back now as well look back but in the sort of 70, 80s 70s 80s that all these programs which in fact were curricular for the slow learner, the less able, something like that. Yeah. But um, and they had, you can tell they, they had these titles like mathematics for the majority. Okay. Now mathematics for the minority was what you might call real mathematics. Yeah. Mathematics for the majority was in fact using numbers in practical context, yeah. but never making the jump. Again, it comes back to the fact they never never tackled the rupture, the point I made earlier, the rupture between, in a sense, the fact that people know about numbers in relation to the world. They learn that without being taught it. Yeah. But the move to actually being able to think about numbers in different ways, probabilities, statistics, all those kind of things, they didn't, the majority didn't have access to that. And it was assumed there was a happy place for them without that knowledge. But that knowledge... I guess that that was a reaction to Future One, and then in Future Two you have a situation, I guess, in, in your world where, uh, in your view, where those children were being denied that experience beyond that no, experience of knowledge that's beyond right. their own experience. That's right. That's right. No, and, no. And did that make their, you know, there could be an argument, I guess, from some people saying, well, if we teach vocational maths, they don't need to know all that underpinning, uh, yeah, knowledge. But you, that, your argument was, but, the, but then there's a tricky question about need, mm. because you know, if 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 you have a if you have something called as the 1944 Education Act, it, secondary education for all, mm. then you don't have a notion of need, which say that some kids don't need something. Yeah, yeah. You actually say that it's a common need for access to knowledge. And it's only quite a lot later that in fact, 
kids will differentiate into different fields and so forth. Mm. So I, I and I think that that the there was a problem with the whole comprehensive movement that it it abolished selection of school, but it didn't abolish the selection role of knowledge. Yeah. Um, so you've got the tripartite school system re reappearing within the comprehensive schools, even among the radical people. So you find that essentially we were making decisions about uh, children still in the comprehensive system that were still channeling them down that's, that's right. sort of uh, predetermined routes. No, no, yeah, yeah. And earlier, than uh, rather than focusing on the fact that they might have had some difficulties. How do you help them to move on? Except that their difficulties almost were innate. Mm. And therefore, and particularly if they were in a low stream or if they were in a, uh, if they were, um, in a, a secondary modern as opposed to a technical or a grammar school. Mm. And so how does that take us into Future Free? I mean, uh, the reason we're talking in part is because our columnist Mark Enser said that the next 10 years are going to be the, the era of Future Free. Um, and I'm sure you're pleased to read it. Um, but could you explain well, to me what, or to the listeners rather, what, what Future Free is? Well, I mean, Future Three really was an attempt to say um, it's all very well to be, you know, a sociologist who writes critiques uh, of, of current curricula who says um, this curricula is bad for this reason, that's bad for that reason. Then, in a sense, it's reasonable to ask, well, so what? Yeah. Um, and Future 3 is an attempt to answer the so what, that in fact, and, and it, it's very undeveloped in the original article, mm. but it's been picked up with people who mostly haven't read probably the original <laughs> article, but if they had, they wouldn't have found all that much on it. It's picked up by trying to actually combine the two to say that, in a sense, uh, that the access, Access to knowledge involves the activity that was emphasised in Future One, with the knowledge that was emphasised in, um, in Future Future the the, the act the participation and activity involved in Future Two, with the knowledge that had been dispensed with, except for the elite. Yes. So you have a, a situation where you're empowering uh, students to have a role in the evaluation and in the creation of knowledge. You have a, you, they're empowered, but they're not empowered in a kind of um, uh, students can decide way. Mm. I mean, I'm very uneasy with the whole concept that was emphasised at that time of student choice, mm. because often um, student choice depends on circumstances that you are in already. Yeah. So that in a sense, if 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 you have if you've not if if you don't have much support at home, you haven't done very well. You're going you're going to make a kind of choice that isn't a real choice at all yeah. because you don't know where it's going to lead to. Yeah. You know, and if, if I, don't know, I, I went on from doing GCSEs to doing A-level physics, chemistry and maths okay. because I knew that that was going to be the next route if I was going to go on. Mm. And so I don't really, you know, so choice was emphasised as a kind of child-centred thing. But in fact, actually, it was the, it was the opposite. And, and, and as we see now, you know, the, um, the government about 2004, I think, they introduced um, schools, schools were given choice and kids were given choice about, for instance, whether they did a foreign language mm -hmm. 
at 14, where they did single subject science, uh, the sciences rather than general science, various choices, in fact, which in fact, I, I would argue that in fact that was a mistaken use of choice. Mm. And I guess in this vision, the teacher is is not just a communicator of knowledge, it's, it, they are the selector of knowledge, the developer of knowledge, That's right. and, and responsible for not the choice, but some sort of interplay between teacher and child about the interpretation of the knowledge. No, I think, I think that's right. And in a sense, the, the, the teacher has to have in mind the development of the child mm. and what certain decisions and choices might mean for that development. And, and, a sense, and in that sense, uh, the teacher is more like a doctor who is actually looking at the future health of the, of the, of the patient and actually advising them, if you do this, this happens. Mm. And I think that we don't give enough credit to the teacher or enough responsibility of the teacher to make that judgment, because nobody else can. Yeah. No. I mean, nobody else in a trustworthy way. Parents almost certainly won't be able to. The, the pupil themselves won't. But the teacher is in the best position to know what, what's best, uh, you know, and what's going to lead to a best future. And I think that we overemphasize differentiation before 16 and we should actually limit differentiation as much as we can up to 16 so that that actually maximizes the range of choices mm. um, that, that in fact are available from 16 on yeah. and, and I also think of course that it's an enormous mistake to still have an examination at 16. No other European country has the equivalent of GCSE um, and um, we have it for various kinds of accountability reasons rather than for educational reasons. We never hear an educational argument for having an examination which structures choice and decisions at, in the middle of a school career. It's a leftover from when that was the end of a school career yeah. for most kids. So you would get rid of GCSEs and, and when would you specialise then? Would you have a, a general education up to 18 and then you specialise or how would that specialise? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we have a vastly over-specialised, um, I mean, education, even for those, you know, even for those of us who were, in quotes, relatively well educated, mm. you know, I did nothing but physics, chemistry and maths from the age of 16 to the age of 18. That's not an education. Mm. It's not a good education. So we over-specialise, and I, I would maintain a breadth, and the part of the reason we over-specialise um, is that, in fact, we still have, other than in Scotland, short first degrees. Because yeah. Scots have four years, you see, where you can... And the Americans have, you know, much broader first degrees. Uh, and I think that, in a, particularly in a modern 21st century uh, you know, time, we actually have to have we have to emphasise breadth as well as specialisation. And do you think then that because in your work it seems to be that you know if a teacher is going to be this sort of arbiter of knowledge or at least a trans, uh, some sort of uh, play with knowledge that comes in and and, and mm -hmm. goes out, the role of subjects is an interesting one because at secondary I can see how a geography teacher or a maths teacher might have that specialist knowledge. Uh, there may be subjects where they haven't got enough teachers, so that becomes more difficult. And at primary as well, where you, you tend to get literacy and numeracy specialists, but the specialisms beyond that tend to mm -hmm. tend to fade away. How do you how do you get to a point where that teacher is able to be that selector of knowledge and that interpreter of knowledge? Well, I mean, 
I think it's a great mistake, the, the literacy and numeracy strategies, mm. because I don't think that generic knowledge of language or number are, in a sense, knowledge. They're, mm. they're access to knowledge. I would, in fact, and what it's led to is a diminution of the opportunities in the primary school for kids to do a variety of, uh, to develop a learning in a variety of contexts. So, I mean, that I would, I mean, that, that I would think is, is, is quite an important issue, you know, that in fact, um, you can't get away from the fact that in a sense that teachers who are excited and challenged by their subjects are most likely to stimulate pupils in learning. Mm. Nobody is going to, if you're an English teacher, you're never going to be able to stimulate a pupil in literacy. Yeah. because it's boring. Yeah. Uh, you're going to stimulate a, a pupil in literature and in a sense if, it's, if literature is well taught and, and well selected on the curriculum then in a sense you will become literate hmm. in the more technical sense and that I think is true across the, across the world. That's why I'm, you know, as an, I used to teach Science. I used to teach chemistry in secondary school before I came to university, okay. uh, and um, I'm very, very committed to the importance of single subjects because, in a sense, nowhere. I mean, no one does science in our society, modern society, except those who teach it. <laughs> no one does. It's crazy, really. What they do, they do increasingly specialised versions of chemistry or physics or biology. Mm. So there's a good case for actually teaching those subjects, but no case for teaching general, integrated, combined, any of those things at all. And um, so what you get uh, is a kind of genericism uh, that you're taught. And um, I had, a, I mean, it's a particular experience, but you might not want to put it in the podcast. But in fact, I, I when my daughter, uh, elder daughter, who's, um, uh, she she was hopeless at science. And so I said, let's look at the exam papers. And I spent two or three weekends before GCSEs going through them. And increasingly I found that she, she's a bright kid, I mean, in other ways, mm. but she just didn't take science, that she could work out and, uh, uh, what the answer was being looked for. And in a sense, she ended up with two Bs at GCSE okay. in science, but she didn't any more science than anybody who had not done it. You know, I, I, I think that's a really unfortunate development, really. And I, I think there's a slight reversal to that now, which I'm very pleased to hear, because subjects, I think, subjects have been seen as traditional, old-fashioned, backward-looking, elitist, all those things, but they and they can be those things, of course they can, mm. but what they also are, are ways of building the identity of the learner, yeah. getting them to be excited about wanting to acquire more knowledge, because the boundaries, actually, they come across, they find there is a boundary, and there are boundaries in life, you know, yeah. so I don't think one should be frightened of boundaries, but as long as you can communicate the sense that they have a purpose, but they're not fixed, they're not given, you know, and therefore I think that I think subjects are, are absolutely crucial role in in uh, in the curriculum for any child. Do we need then to recruit 
we'll find a way of recruiting more subject specialists in primary? Or do we need, or do primary teachers need a level of knowledge that perhaps means they can be generalists as teachers and still do that knowledge communication process? Uh, I hesitate to comment about, I'm, I mean, uh, I've, you know, I taught in secondary schools mm. and I've, my, all my research and so forth has been on the secondary curriculum and the post-compulsory a little bit in higher education. I think it's very tricky, you know, I, I would hesitate. What I would say is that, um, and I think the most successful primary schools have some subject specialists and in a sense every teacher in a primary school should be a subject specialist uh, but not necessarily only teach the subject. Okay. That's what I would think and therefore in a sense they would have a relationship with the other subject specialists so their class would sometimes go to the subject specialist not not stay with their class teacher. So I think it's a different relay. I mean, there's too sharp a difference between child-centered, all the time, no specialization. You get to, to the secondary school Suddenly, and yeah. exactly the opposite. Yeah. And no wonder some kids find it difficult to make the move. Do you think that's where all through schools have an advantage? And I know not all through schools do this, but... Free schools? All through schools. So the schools that take a child from four to 18, and it, it seems to be increasingly that that model you're talking about, where they go to an, a science teacher. So you have the secondary science teacher who will actually do some work with year six, year five, year four, maybe even earlier. And so you have some of these subject specialists, you know, there is general teaching, I think, still, but like they dive into literacy, they will dive into science and they will dive into languages teaching with, mm -hmm. a, with a specific teacher. And because they have the secondary teachers in the all through system, they're available to them. Is it easier for them to do, to do the sort of... I don't think it's easier because I think none of it's easy. Okay. I think it's hard. Yeah. Uh, but I've been very, very impressed. I've worked a little bit with them... School 21. Yes, yeah. And they started off without subjects and emphasising, uh, you know, uh, reliance and these kind of notions. Yeah. And they gradually realised they had to bring subjects in. Uh, and the question is how? And for instance, one of the guys I know who's head of science, he's actually thinking about science for five-year-olds and A-level science. And I think that gives... Him really? and his team are really interesting. The relationship. I mean, I, I don't know the school directly, but I'm I'm very impressed with the model. And in that sense, I think that um, that the school, the free school, not because it's a free school, but because it's got that through. Yeah, or or free. Got a lot to offer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it takes us to policy, I guess, because your name comes up in articles in TES so often. Like I all get a submission weekly where you are quoted, and and you're quoted in very different contexts. Um, so. In your view, for example, is your work, does your work have any association with pedagogy? I mean, we we emphasised that this. It, that I'm just to add a bit, and hmm. you can agree or not. Um, this comes up because of this emphasis on powerful knowledge mm. and the idea in the book I wrote with David Lambert that in fact powerful knowledge could be a curriculum principle. Mm. Therefore, in a sense, and that, that's, what, that's where it comes from. I mean, I think that we over, we, we, when I started writing this, um, I had these two um, approaches to the curriculum 
Remember, I wasn't thinking about influencing practice in schools. I was thinking about questions of sociological research and education yeah. uh, then, because that was the context I was in. But we had these two notions, powerful knowledge and knowledge of the powerful. Mm. Now, uh, they've got split. And knowledge of the powerful got forgotten about. Mm. Knowledge of the powerful was, in a sense, the old, in, the old sociological way that said the, 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 the curriculum is an imposition by the ruling class, okay. that kind of argument. Mm. Not terribly helpful. It's got some truth in it, but not terribly helpful. But what knowledge of the powerful, which has got lost, does forget, is, is I think, is, is, it forgets uh, what, sorry, what powerful knowledge on its own is limited in two ways. In one way, that it implies there's a sharp separation between curriculum and pedagogy, yeah. which is actually false. Okay. I'm, that's where the centre of my current work, trying to think about that very issue. Mm -hmm. The other is that, in fact, um, having a curriculum based on powerful knowledge is not just getting the concepts and the subjects right, it's having the resources to do it. Mm. Uh, and in a sense, I would say that a powerful knowledge curriculum is a high resource curriculum. And that, of course, is why, in a sense, the private schools and the grammar schools can do it. And part of the resources, the support they get from their parents, part of the resources, there's a lot more, lot more money, yeah. uh, <laughs> crudely. So I think we have to hold together those and not imagine that if you've, if you've got relatively low resources, that you're going to actually succeed with a high resource curriculum. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's not ever been grasped because it's a rather more uncomfortable issue. And also it's an issue that blurs the educational debate and the political debate. Yeah. And I think that's another issue that someone else who's been cited in the knowledge movement, Edie Hirsch, Mm -hmm. You've both been sort of gathered into this argument for knowledge, which has aligned itself with mm -hmm. um, perhaps, you know, people, I'm sure listeners will correct me if I'm wrong, but no. it, it's aligned itself with a more traditional form of teaching and a, and a more traditional view of behaviour. And so you have this package being rolled out where the, yours and, and the E.D. Hirsch's work is aligned to, 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 to a pedagogy and aligned to an approach to behaviour and, and a value system in education actually mm. and I, I, I interviewed E.D. Hirsch a couple of years ago and he was mm. quite shocked at, yeah. at being clubbed together with I can imagine and for yourself I mean how do you feel about that those associations well I've had I've come across a lot of criticisms about of that of that kind mm. uh, directly or sometimes from colleagues and friends of mine you know what are you doing you're actually sustaining the inequality that you claim to be opposed to. Um, I, I, I think that, um, I mean, I think that it, uh, that is a tricky issue because one of the things I have emphasized is that you can't escape, and this is really a critique of future two, mm -hmm. you can't criticize uh, reliably the idea that in fact there's a there are hierarchies in pedagogy mm. that in fact actually there's some people who know and others who don't yeah. you know it's it's always whatever you do you know you can't turn education into a collaborative community yeah. it's always going to be a, a collaborative hierarchy mm. and I think that's really important and it often has got become 
a kind of polarization. People tend to end up by polarizing things into two opposites, which is not really very helpful because, and just as with curriculum and pedagogy, um, you can't, you could write the most beautiful curriculum in terms of its sequencing, its pacing, its reliability of the knowledge taken from the disciplines, all those things. Now those things are important, we could do that, but if you haven't addressed what the teachers have to do to in fact enable the kids to acquire that knowledge, you know, you're going to do nothing. <laughs> uh, and I think that um, it's made me want to focus much more, uh, more recently, on how that second, the, the fact that, that, that the curriculum is actually, it's a different concept of knowledge to the knowledge that's produced by research. Mm -hmm. That in fact, the, if you're if you're a researcher trying to find, get nearer to the truth about the universe or about whether Shakespeare what what he said in interpreting Hamlet whatever or some kind of historical thing like that, you're not concerned. That one of your concerns is not how how are pupils going to understand that. Yeah. But if you're a teacher, that is a, it's always a concern, and so the actual organisation of the knowledge is going to be different. You. Uh, not just the selection, but the relationship, and you actually have to focus on the fact that you want you want kids to inquire and to actually, because the, the most successful teaching that I've ever done and, and I find it's not different when you're supervising a PhD student yeah. than when you're teaching a, a, a second year secondary teacher. The most, when the when the learner manages to engage with what they're doing yeah. and really then the teacher can almost sit back yeah you know um, because in a sense it's a learning issue i think that i think teachers do that you know like there's a very yes. polarized debate uh maybe on social media and at a policy level but when i go into schools what i see mm -hmm. is teachers doing exactly that they're, they're looking at that class they're looking at the relationships they have and they're saying this pedagogical approach today will be the best approach i have to come communicate this level of knowledge and it's not like a it's not like they'll do that every lesson it's, no. it's, it's a chameleon if you like of of different approaches yeah. um so and those polarizations I, I couldn't agree with you more and and those polarizations are really uh the problem is that they're hard to they're hard to conceptualize in a sense yeah. i mean for instance my colleague david lambert uh has an interesting notion that, about curriculum making but Curriculum, uh, curriculum making involves the relationship with the student, but it also involves the relationship with the body of knowledge, mm. and it's and in a sense, and so it's it's quite it, it's not easy to develop that model. We're getting a sense now this this difficulty you're saying because really to to effectively teach we're saying you not only have to be an expert at some level on your content, but an expert level on reading your students and an expert level at communicating and bridging those two, those two polars, opposites, I guess. Um. No, you do, you, you have to. No, I think, but then we come back to that old question that in fact, you know, teaching is a just as difficult a profession as law or medicine, mm. but for various reasons, partly that there are a lot of teachers, uh, that in fact, uh, partly that, and partly that, in fact, there's not the body of scientific knowledge that's almost itself given, yeah. uh, or the body of law, which is almost kind of given. Yeah. There's not the same, the, 
the, a lot of left to the judgment of the teacher and therefore it doesn't have the, the difficulty of the task doesn't have the status in the society that it should mm. that's what they always say about you know Finland is always put up there yes. as the great success story you know and um, but basically I mean I had a very interesting story I always experienced um, I was giving a seminar to a group of um, Australian heads who've been going around different um, uh, different European schools in different European countries. They ended up with me and I was asked to give them a sort of review of you know, the curriculum. Now, I remember talking to the heads and they said, we didn't, we didn't think much of what went on in Finland. Um, far as far as we could see, it was a lot of teachers standing up in front of the class, and a lot of pupils sitting rather quietly. <laughs> and uh, but what they didn't—I mean, not only that, obviously—but what 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 he didn't grasp was that what was really different was the common valuing of education and teachers in Finland in comparison to Australia or England. Yeah, that's that's what did, made the difference, you know. The, therefore, the support that parents gave, all those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. And I guess my final question then yeah. is, oh, is, right. is if, is if uh, you know, at the moment, because of Ofsted mainly, but also because of the rain back, a lot of schools are looking at their curriculum. And if they pick up your work and say, I, I, would, I want to do a powerful knowledge curriculum, what would you say to them? Say to Ofsted? To, to the, te the head teacher. And oh, the head teacher. And the oh, body. right. Yeah, and they're saying, yeah. I, wanna, I, I want my, my curriculum to be a powerful knowledge curriculum well I would I would make I, I, I would start by trying to make sure that in a sense the subject teachers really felt involved and knowledgeable about their subjects mm -hmm. and actually got a kick out of their subjects mm -hmm. um, that, as, as something that really interesting that I, I and that somehow or other and this is difficult I think what's difficult is that you also want them to take kids seriously, even those who don't get excited by their subject. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's that relationship I would want to stress, that relationship between your subject, you know, I really think that chemistry is a thrill, you know, not everybody does, they find it. And, but in a sense, um, you've, got to, you've got to be committed to making it, so, and you've also got to, it's also about your subject, you've got to, as the teachers, you've got to believe that any kid who comes to your school can, at the very least, get something out of chemistry up till the age of 16. They may not go on doing it afterwards, that's yeah. fine, but in fact up to then. So I, I'd be stressing, I'd be stressing the, 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 the task of bringing on all the kids and of the respect for the subject that, in fact, you're teaching them. And, that's, um, and I think the best teachers do that anyway. Does that mean, do you think, understanding that I have not that not every child is going to find to be curious to explore your subject and to find a way of do you think a good teacher can make a student curious about anything or do you think it's an acceptance that say okay well uh, it's a fair enough question and I <laughs> can give you an answer exactly I think that the, the teacher must be that must be a part of the teacher's commitment but I mean just as doctors don't cure every patient some kids will fail, mm. some kids will not do well, and the teacher shouldn't feel guilty about that. But it's a question, I mean, the question seems to me is the assumption you can have about, well, two things, I think. The assumptions of the value of knowledge, 
and the assumptions that you have about pupils, mm -hmm. that, that they can do it. Now, some won't, however hard you try. But what you can hold on to is the fact that it's no good, um, I don't know, uh, I think of the example of, 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 of chemistry, because that's what I used to teach in school. Um, it's no good being uncertain and unsure about the basic knowledge whatever it is, of the elements of organic chemistry, or the structure of carbon atom, whatever it is. It's no good being, you, you've got to start from a confidence in that. Not because it's fixed, but because it actually gives you the best questions to ask. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's the key thing. Because if, if they can grasp the idea it's about the best questions to ask, they'll want to go on asking those questions. Now you won't be able to do it with any, every kid, so I can't do it with, well, I teach, I don't teach very much now uh, of the Institute, but you know, I want to excite people, kids, students, in actually thinking about what schools are before, before they go and teach in a school. Yeah, yeah. And I think that we don't ask that question. I mean, one of the, I think, I mean, you know, um, I gave a, it was about 2008, I gave a talk to the RSA called What Are Schools For? Uh, which has been published. It's, I think it's kind of one of the, I mean, it was a revelation to me to ask that question. Yeah. And therefore, if it was a revelation, and, it, and I think it was one of the more important papers, it's not a very, it's not one that's got high in the academic rating, but actually getting people to ask that, the audience of the RSA, all graduates, of course, yeah. didn't like the talk. They didn't like the talk because they thought there was community education for some who needed it and academic education for others. And they thought they heard me saying that schools have a purpose that is about access to knowledge, which is why I, I mean, if they don't have a, that purpose, I really don't know what we have schools for except childminding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Okay, well, on. anyway, I hope you get something out of it. No, it's brilliant. Thank you.